Hello, and welcome to the Tales from Heretz podcast, third episode. I'm your host, William Ringham, a former pupil from Heretz from the class of 2020. Previously, we have looked at the life of George Heriot and tried to uncover some mysteries during the time when the original hospital building was being built. Today, we shall discover what happened at the school from its time of opening to the late 18th century. Tales of criminal dogs, schoolboy trials and hot air balloon rides are all to come. So, after Cromwell eventually left the hospital, the governors wasted no time with getting the hospital ready for opening. On the 11th of April, 1659, 30 boys were elected to become the first occupants of the hospital. A Mr. James Lawson was chosen to become master governor of the hospital, and his original duties can be found in the statutes of the school. His principal care was to see that the scholars be brought up in fear of Almighty God. The statutes also contain interesting evidence of what life was like when the hospital first opened. These include what the boys were made to wear, with the statutes describing their uniform as, and I quote, Their apparel shall be of sad russet cloth, doublets, breeches, and stockings or hose, and gowns of the same colour, with black hats and strings, which they shall be bound to wear during their abode in the hospital, and no other. The statutes also tell us the direct line of education the boys were set to follow, as they say, after the scholars have learnt to read and write Scots distinctly and Latin rudiments, they shall be put out to the grammar school of Edinburgh, there to be taught until such time as they can be fit for the college or to be apprentices. These extracts from the statutes clearly differ from what life is like at Harriet's today. However, Harriet's also started offering bursarial positions at the hospital almost immediately after opening, something which the school today still upholds. The University of Edinburgh offered funds for 10 bursaries and the boys were elected to fill these positions in early 1660. The main building of the hospital was treated with great care. As to prevent any risk of fire, inhabitants were restricted to using any light source inside the buildings at any time. This rule was primarily for shopkeepers that rented rooms in the hospital to sell their produce in the early days, something that the governors agreed to do due to the abundance of rooms that the hospital had when it first opened. The governors also held high standards for the upkeep of the gardens that encompassed the hospital. For a long time, they were regarded as a place of public beauty, with Thomas Pennant describing them in his 1769 book, Tour on Scotland, as The gardens were formerly the resort of the gay, and there the Scotch poets often laid in their comedies, the scenes of intrigue. The gardener at the hospital received correspondence from the governors on the 30th of September, 1661, that detailed their direct intentions for the gardener. This writing laid out that the south part thereof be planted with all sorts of physical, medicinal and other herbs, such as the country can afford, conform to the fullest catalogue that can be had, that such who intend to study herbs may have the full access there, they not wronging or molesting the salmon, and that in the remnant of the wilderness or maze the walks be kept clean. This garden was duly created and open for the public to enjoy. Harriet's Garden was regarded as the first public botanical gardens in Scotland, with the Royal Botanical Gardens in Edinburgh only being opened in 1670. The initial years at the hospital's operation contained some of the most striking stories. Let us remember that this was a time when individuals were still being burned at the stake for being supposed witches. And as we discussed in the last episode, this time was also subject to great religious, parliamentary and royal reform. The Scottish Test Act was passed in 1681, which enforced that every holder of public office was to take an oath of non-resistance in order to deem them trustworthy and thus fit to serve in a position of public office. 
Notably in the same year, the Earl of Argyll was tried and convicted for high treason after refusing the test oath. Herriot's Hospital had a dog at the time to watch over the grounds of the hospital, giving the dog a position of public office. The boys then saw it only right for the dog to have to testify under oath. The archives at Harriet still have an article dated 1682 that recalls the event. The piece starts by exclaiming that the Test Act is being adhered to strictly in Scotland before describing the tragic comedy that later ensued at Harriet's. The story goes as follows. Due to the fact that anyone who held a place of public office had to be deemed trustworthy and test oath, the Harriet's Hospital dog, or tyke as it was called in Old Scots, was asked if it wanted to take the test or to leave its office. The dog replied with nothing but silence. The question was asked repeatedly to the dog, but to no surprise its answer was always the same. The boys then took it upon themselves to place the test upon the dog. They decided to have a small, dog-sized if you will, copy of the paper printed and presented to the dog. Again, unsurprisingly, the dog simply ignored the paper. The boys took a further step and rubbed the paper in butter. Some accounts go on to say that the dog simply licked the butter off, leaving the paper. Whilst the article from 1682 depicts the boys placing the paper in the dog's mouth and down its throat, before the dog proceeded to throw up the paper. Either way, the paper was left untouched by the dog, despite the boys' best efforts. This was seen as the dog failing the test, and therefore the dog should be executed, as it was deemed untrustworthy. The case was not settled, however, as it went to court, due to the fact that the dog had some defence. The dog's representatives pleaded that the paper would have been of poor quality, and as it had been rolled up to put down the throat of the dog, some of the words would have been defaced and damaged, making the paper and the test illegitimate. Others pleaded that the dog was of trustworthy character, as it had never been known to committing any untrustworthy acts. These arguments never managed to outweigh the fact that the dog simply refused the test oath. The jury found the dog guilty of treason, and it was sentenced to prison before being hanged, like her dog. In the article from 1682, the writer expresses his own opinion of the case, which was that he thought the dog was trustworthy, as he swallowed at least more than half the paper. However, after throwing it up, the dog left what it had reproduced untouched, which the writer deemed very undog-like, as he exclaims that a dog would usually eat its own vomit. The writer thinks the only explanation for this is because it contained remnants of the paper, so actually the dog should face the sentence it was charged with. What happened to the dog after sentencing is again hazy. Some accounts say that the dog was hung as intended, possibly even in the quadrangle at a hospital by the boys themselves. Others recall that the dog escaped from prison with a bounty placed on its head or tail, and the article details the advice from an individual to the dog of following this through by covering itself in the skin of a fox and hiding in a field with sheep. The school now houses a resident dog, yet fortunately it is treated in a completely different light. Hugo is the school's full-time on-site therapist, providing support for the guidance team and offering pupils the proven benefits of having a dog present at school. Just as the dog from the early years at Harriet's met his doom through the laws of the land and the laws being upheld by the boys at the time, the boys also formed their own system of justice at Harriet's. The 1700s saw the creation of the Garring Law at the hospital, what could be dubbed as the first and hopefully only fagging system at the school. There is no written evidence of what the laws included or the Garring Law's constitution. It simply ran by tradition and was passed down through one Harrieter to the next. 
Fagging system may even be putting it lightly, as in Memories of a Modern Monk, a historic account of Harriet's. Author Clement Gunn refers to the Garing Law as an aristocracy or government by the strongest, and it gave the so-called lads, the oldest boys of the hospital, absolute depotism to rule over all the other boys. So, let me explain how the Garing Law worked. Every boy at the hospital was ranked due to their time spent at Harriet's. New Coming Ones was the title given to the boys who had spent less than six months at the hospital. This gave them an immunity to the Garing Law, only to be dealt a punishment or quote-unquote mugging, as it has been referred to, under exceptional circumstances. They all shared one room in the hospital by themselves and gradually learnt the way of the Garing Law through observation, not participation. One rank above the New Coming Ones was the large body of Naps. Naps received absolutely no privileges and were simply subject to the laws made by the boys. Then came the Cholds, boys who had between 12 and 6 months left at the hospital, making them also immune to any fagging. The lads, as discussed earlier, were the eldest boys at the hospital, only having 6 months left at Harriet's. They were the primary enforcers of the system, all equal in rank bar one, the Gara. This title was saved for the boy who could fight all the others. The lads had full control over the naps, as a glossary of old terms used in the hospital clearly stated that the older boys could compel any of the younger boys to do anything. Yes, anything. Tales include the lads forcing naps to patch potatoes, meats, plum pudding, or anything else for the lads' sole gratification. A lad would immediately be given the warmest place when they entered a room in the winter, usually right in front of the fireplace. A lad would also never brush his own clothes or sew his own buttons. This was all done by the inferior boys. Naps would also be instructed to cover for any lad who had left the school on Saturday when roll was called, and if the nap was found out, they were to take the following punishment themselves. The Garing Law also kept the boys in check, with any disputes being settled by a court hearing and usually a subsequent mugging. The Garing Law was a secret sort of fraternity at Harriet's, so if any boy was found out telling on any of the other boys, or if they released the information of the Garing Law to the masters, they would be well punished by the system. In winter, tellers would be subject to a beating from all the boys in a snow house erected by the boys in order to deal the punishment in secrecy. So-called fire and water was the punishment of choice in winter, where tellers had to run the gauntlet in their dormitories with boys on either side wielding thongs of leather and mugs of water until the teller had promised amendment. This actually kept most of the boys obedient, and it wasn't until the late 1700s when the Garing Law was found out and the masters tried to eradicate it. Its influence on the internal politics of Harriet's didn't only affect the boys, as it is said at one point the lads even had control over the cook. Boys were often sent with money by their parents before returning to Harriet's, as paying your way out of any punishment from the older boys was usually the only way to get around it. As a recent former pupil, I can safely say that no such system is in place at the school right now, and current prefects hold a lot of authority but no actual powers of discipline. The 1700s saw a few fascinating tales at Harriet's as well. In 1743, one of the boys was struck with total blindness at Harriet's. After hearing of this news, the governors made immediate plans for the boy to be placed under the best master in town to prepare him for becoming a teacher of instrumental music. Fortunately, there have been only a handful of casualties in the hospital's history. This is especially surprising to hear, as at one stage the boy's favourite exercise consisted of scaling the outside of the main building, which they supposedly carried out with ease due to the various and ornate carvings on the walls. 
It is said that at times they spent more of their hours on the roof of the building than in the classrooms themselves. One of the most famous former pupils, Sir Henry Rayburn, also attended Heriot's around this time, being elected in April 1765 to join the hospital. Born on the 4th of March 1756 in Stockbridge, Rayburn was not born into a wealthy family, hence he was given a place to study at the hospital. Rayburn is sadly forgotten about in Heriot's archives, with nothing to commemorate his time at the hospital and being present at the school. One of the school houses is, however, named after him, yet little is known of his time at Heriot's. He was known to caricature his comrades at Heriot's, and without any direct guidance or teaching, he started to produce beautiful miniatures of his friends. A final tale from Heriot's in this episode comes from the year 1785. The grounds were a host to a spectacle at the time, one of the first flights of man in Scotland. The first to be airborne in Scotland was a Scotsman, James Tyler, whose voyage took place in Edinburgh on the 27th of August, 1784. This voyage was said to have been unsuccessful, so we can ascribe the first successful voyage by hot air balloon in Scotland to George Heriot's. Thousands flocked to Heriot's grounds on the 5th of October, 1785, as Vincenzo Lunardi, an Italian-born hot air balloon pioneer, set off to cross the Firth of Forth and land in Ceres Fife. The journey was 46 miles in total, as Lunardi was carried by a steady wind from the hospital, north over the city, and safely landing in the fields of Fife. Harriet's welcomed anyone who wanted to watch the event, which must have been celebrated by all who came. In 1985, the school had a bicentennial celebration for Lunardi's time at Harriet's, which included balloon flight demonstrations, lectures on Lunardi's time at Harriet's, and tours of the school. Thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of the Tales from Harriet's podcast. What do you think will be different or stayed the same since your time at Harriet's? Please join us next time as we look at how life at the school has changed over the years for pupils. We look forward to comparing the life of a Harrieter in the Victorian era to that of a Harrieter now.